0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: When parents and doctors disagree, how do courts decide whether or not to withdraw life support from a hospitalised child? Hi, Damien Carrick. Here, this is The Law Report. Also, later in the program, the Australian Law Reform Commission's deep thinking on how to promote judicial impartiality.
0: We're proposing a judicial commission... And it is a place that would support judges and provide an accessible avenue for lawyers and judges who do have concerns about judicial
1: officers. And the defamation battle between billionaire Clive Palmer and WA Premier Mark McGowan ends in a draw. But is our court system the big loser?
2: The parties spent so much money and consumed so many resources of the court on a dispute which in the grand scheme of things Isn't that significant?
1: Twelve-year-old Archie Battersby has died in a London hospital after a four-month legal fight between his parents and doctors. Against the wishes of his family, his life support was withdrawn. The tragic case highlights how the law thinks about life and death and also how it thinks about the best interests of the child, Samantha Pillay is a medico-legal expert with Barry Nielsen Lawyers in Brisbane. She often acts for hospitals. Samantha Pillay, who was Archie Battersby and what happened to him?
3: Thanks, Damien. Well, I guess at the outset I just want to acknowledge how difficult and sad Archie's case is and the other cases like it. I think this is an area of the law where we see some of the most compassionate and beautifully written judgments, but it really is a very sad case. Um, So for Archie... He was found by his mother and he's believed to have been participating in a TikTok online challenge. He um, was unresponsive and investigations revealed that he had sort of suffered a catastrophic brain injury with no prospects of recovery.
1: And this was on the 7th of April this year. So what followed, following that diagnosis, was a series of court cases. The first actually concluded that he was actually sort of legally speaking, dead. But that was overturned, and then the next question became what was in the best interests of him. Can you briefly walk me through those two judgments?
3: So the first judgment was to the effect that the MRI scans showed that he was brain dead, essentially, and it wasn't necessary for the court to consider what's in his best interest if he was legally dead. That was appealed by Archie's family successfully to the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal ruled that it was not accurate in the circumstances to make a finding of brain death because it wasn't conclusive. So, the Court of Appeal sent the matter back to the High Court for determining what was in Archie's best interests in the circumstances.
1: So, what did the High Court say was in his best interests?
3: Well, first of all, it looked at the medical evidence about the prospects of recovery what was being um done to keep him alive basically and it also looked then at other factors as well so Archie's family cultural religious factors and um Archie's life and what what he was like when he was alive it was a beautiful judgment written by justice hayden and it really set out the story of Archie but in the end it was concluded that the treatment was entirely futile and so keeping administering the treatment would compromise Archie's dignity. Justice Hayden said, ultimately, it doesn't prolong his life, it just serves only to protract his death.
1: So only protracting death, not prolonging life. Not that prolonging seems to be life. the key.
3: That's right. And the Court of Appeal then looked at that and said, consent can only be given to medical treatment when it's in the patient's best interests. And here, every day that Archie continues to be given this treatment is contrary to be his best interests in compromising his dignity.
1: I mean, there is an argument, isn't there, that the family know what's in a child's best interests rather than the treating doctors?
3: Absolutely. And that's what the family was asserting. And in these cases, the court will certainly have regard to the wishes of the family and the wishes of the patient, um, if there were any wishes expressed when they were alive or when they were conscious. But ultimately, that's not the only factor. It's just one factor of a number.
1: Presumably similar cases come up here in Australia. Are they decided along similar legal principles?
3: They are, and the Australian case law derives from the UK, so the similar principles are taken into account here, and there have been a handful of Australian cases.
1: This is all about families and treating doctors having different views about what is futile or non-beneficial or painful. What can be done... And I guess I'm not sure if this is a legal question or not, but what can be done to make those conversations and those decision-making processes less litigious, less adversarial?
3: That's right. It's not a legal question a lot of the time. Um, and that's why I think often it is it is something that's sorted out by the families with the treatment providers. Families can challenge decisions that they don't agree with about best interests, often by requesting a second medical opinion from someone outside of the hospital or outside of the treating team and the hospitals and health services generally have a dispute resolution process whereby the, the clinicians engage with the patients. It's only when these processes are exhausted that it can come before the Supreme Court or Family Court or um, sometimes the state tribunals.
1: Samantha Pillay, a medico-legal expert with Barry Nilsson Lawyers in Brisbane, who often acts for healthcare providers. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report.
3: Thank you, Damien. <laughs>
1: The Australian Law Reform Commission's final report on judicial impartiality has been tabled in Parliament. Now, as expected, the 600-page report calls for changes to the way that judges in our Commonwealth courts respond when lawyers or litigants have concerns that a judge hearing their case might be biased against them. In an interview with the Law Report last October, the President of the Commission, Justice Sarah Darrington, foreshadowed those changes. But Justice Derrington's final report goes much further. I spoke to Justice Derrington about some of those wider, deeper recommendations, including the creation of a judicial commission, a body that would receive and investigate all sorts of complaints against our federal judges.
0: We're proposing a judicial commission probably similar to that that operates in New South Wales. We haven't specified the model because that itself needs specific consultation. And it is a place that would support judges and provide an accessible avenue for lawyers and judges who do have concerns about judicial officers.
1: Presumably, we're not just talking about bias here. I mean, what about, say, sexual harassment complaints, um, which, of course, was has been a big issue in the High Court? Would it also have a role in those sorts of issues?
0: There's no reason why it wouldn't have a role in those sorts of issues. Really, it's uh, anything that impacts upon the role of the judicial officer and which goes to the perception of the way the courts do their business. So it it could also be uh, for reports of judges who are suffering temperamentally because of some mental health issue. It could be because they're crumbling under workloads and reports are made to the commission about the poor conduct or the poor outcomes or the delays that arise in these sorts of circumstances and the Commission would be able to look at the conduct and make recommendations either for a period of leave, for further training, or of course in the worst case scenario, uh, referral to Parliament for removal.
1: Now, one of your other recommendations is that the Attorney-General should collect and report annually on statistics regarding the diversity of the federal judiciary. You look in your report about how diverse the judiciary currently is. Can you give me a snapshot of of what you you, you found in that report? There's some really sort of eye-opening data there.
0: Well, I think uh, the headline used in the AFR picked out that Most of the uh, federal judiciary uh, comes from an Anglo-Celtic background and is married and speaks English. But that is a very limited view of the diversity within that particular group itself. So I think um, diversity statistics, as we found them, again, like all statistics, tell you something but not
1: the whole story. That was um, picked up from the census data, um, but that does indicate that it's, the judiciary is, doesn't reflect the diversity of modern Australia.
0: No, that's true. And it won't for some time, but it is changing. But I think it is important that the diversity statistics are published so that people can see where there are significant and obvious gaps in the diversity or the makeup of a court and look at why those gaps might be there and what can be done to enhance the diversity. And much of that will start in schools and, in fact, at law schools, where you will see now an extraordinarily diverse student population. And then the question becomes, what happens to the diversity as you progress up the profession um, and often there's a point at which people self-select out and the question is why they self-select out and they need strong leaders amongst the profession across all elements of society so that those elements of society are eventually reflected on the bench
1: and the recommendation about uh, collecting and reporting annually on diversity is making sure that that conversation is an ongoing one and center stage and isn't sort of pushed under the carpet
0: that's right and i think if if courts can report in a standardized manner each year then the conversation remains focused and relevant to how the makeup of the court is developing.
1: And what what figures on the gender composition of the court, maybe the uh, statistics on the number of Indigenous Australians or Asian Australians or Middle Eastern Australians?
0: Or people from non-English, people who speak another language at home. And people seem to think it's important about where people were educated. They might be Um, diversity statistics. You you mean state
1: versus private school?
0: Perhaps. That might tell you something about the background of people. But again, all of these statistics can only tell you a little bit about the lived experience of the judges on the court. And so uh, I think we have to be very mindful about what use these sorts of statistics would be put to.
1: And is this diversity reporting done in any state or territory jurisdiction at the moment or or in other parts of the world?
0: It's done in the UK. So we've drawn from uh, their practices there.
1: Last week on the law report, we looked at the pros and cons of collecting statistical data around court and tribunal decision-making. Now, your report recommends that courts should collect and distribute it this kind of data, or or start thinking seriously about doing that? What was your thinking in making that recommendation?
0: We didn't go quite so far as to say they should start collecting and publishing that. We said they should develop a policy around it. So, in other words, they should start thinking very seriously about it. The thinking around it was that the horse has bolted and that this statistical analysis is already being done by academics. The academics seem to understand that it is a a nuanced uh, study and an art rather than a science. We're not so convinced that the media understands how the data should be interpreted And so we think the judiciary should be on the front foot of at least knowing what the data is, knowing what it means to them as a court and having some tools to look at outliers in the statistics because we know that the data will tell you something about what is going on in a court or even perhaps with a particular judge, but it tells you very little about the cases that the judge is actually dealing with.
1: Your report is about judicial bias and uh, judicial misconduct. I mean, is is this kind of data potentially useful when trying to ascertain whether that kind of misconduct or bias has taken place, together obviously with other other information?
0: The data... Could potentially be useful in relation to bias and unconscious bias in particular. A head of jurisdiction might be alerted to a statistic that shows that a particular judge has never found in favour of a refugee, for example, as your interviewee was talking about um, last week. But That might only be enough to raise a question and then to look at the nature of the cases that have been allocated to that particular judge, to look at whether there have been appeals from those decisions, and if so, if those appeals have been successful. So it might just be enough to ask a question and to ask a question of the judge, him or herself, to say, have you reflected deeply enough on your own? biases before you have made your decisions on these cases, because at a very superficial level, and as the press has pointed out, you seem to be deciding in one particular way. Apart from that, I don't think the statistics are particularly useful in and of themselves.
1: Justice Darrington, President of the Australian Law Reform Commission, thank you. Thank you very much for speaking to the Law Report.
0: My pleasure. Thank you,
1: Damien. At the Law Report website, we have links to my October 2021 interview with Justice Derrington about the Commission's proposals for dealing with complaints of apprehended bias. And we also have a link to her full final report, which has been tabled in Federal Parliament. The high-profile defamation litigation between politician and billionaire Clive Palmer and West Australian Premier Mark McGowan has ended in a draw. Justice Lee of the Federal Court found the pair had defamed each other, awarding Palmer $5,000 damages and McGowan $20,000 damages. Defamation law expert Michael Douglas is a Perth-based lawyer and academic. Michael Douglas, what was the tone of Justice Lee's 140-page judgment?
2: The overarching tone from my perspective was one of frustration that the parties spent so much money and consumed so many resources of the court on a dispute which, in the grand scheme of things, isn't that significant. To be awarded just $15,000 net to Mark McGowan is absolutely nothing compared to the costs that would have gone into seeing this matter all the way through to judgment.
1: Michael Douglas, there was a long-running toxic relationship between Clive Palmer and WA Premier Mark McGowan. It goes back years. What's the crux of that bad blood?
2: The bad blood is with the state of WA, not just McGowan. So the state of WA has been in a a long-running dispute with Clive Palmer's company, Mineralogy. In that dispute, Palmer and his company argue that the state owes them a massive pile of money. And to guard against those arguments, McGowan's government in 2020 passed some pretty extraordinary legislation, basically providing the state with immunity from civil liability so it wouldn't have to pay Palmer or his company, and also going so far as to provide the state, including the Premier, with immunity from criminal prosecution over anything they've done in connection with mineralogy.
1: So there's this toxic relationship, it it centres around, you know, billions in dollars in in potential compensation claims that Clyde Palmer had been fighting through the courts until this legislation put a huge stop to that. But then, of course, you have the COVID epidemic and, and WA closing the borders, and that elevated the bad blood to new levels. What happened at that point?
2: Well, a lot was going on at the same time, but in early 2020, the world felt like it was ending. Uh, Mark McGowan responded to the pandemic, taking some pretty strong action, which ultimately ended up popular. Among other things, he closed the border between WA and the rest of the, the Commonwealth, the rest of the Federation. Palmer disputed that. And at the same time, Palmer was also spruking his own response to COVID. You may recall way back when he was offering to purchase hydroxychloroquine. Uh, I hope I pronounced that right. It's a drug that's used to treat malaria that a lot of conservatives were promoting at the early stages of the pandemic. Anyway, promoting that drug was uh, criticised by a bunch of people, including the Premier. And basically, on on lots of different matters of policy over the response to COVID, the Premier and Clive Palmer traded barbs. And some of those comments that... each made a, about the other, went into the media, of course, and then they became the subject of this defamation litigation. And, and can you give me a flavour of some of those barbs? So at the time, tensions are high. In mid-2020, for example, the Premier described Mr Palmer as a traitor to Australia. while Palmer returned serve with comments like, McGowan lied to the people of the state when he said he acted upon the advice of uh, the state chief health officer in closing the border.
1: So there's a back and forth slinging match, a slanging match um, which takes place over a long period of time. Uh, Palmer sues McGowan and then McGowan sues back or or lodges a counterclaim. What did the judge ultimately find?
2: The judge ultimately found that each side had defamed the other. So Palmer sued over many different imputations or stings conveyed by things that Mark McGowan had said and he succeeded on a bunch of them. Mark McGowan in turn said that Palmer had defamed him with a bunch of different stings and McGowan succeeded on a bunch of those as well. So each side defamed the other and each side failed on its defences to defamation with the weird result that it's kind of a win-win but I think of it the case as more of a a loss-loss, a bit of a draw but if you had to pick a winner it was probably Mark McGowan.
1: This occupies a, a huge amount of court time and resources and presumably the, the lawyer's fees on either side, Clyde Palmer's a rich man he can afford this and presumably the taxpayers of WA are footing Mark McGowan's bill. Big stakes. Why were the damages awarded really, really low? What was the judges thinking in, in awarding such, such paltry figures?
2: Yeah, it's an unusual outcome and the key reason why the damages were so low is that although each side defamed the other, the reputations of Palmer and McGowan weren't really affected by what the other person had to say. So in Palmer's case, the judge said, well, views about Clive Palmer were already baked in such that the ordinary reasonable person didn't really have their view changed by anything that McGowan said, even though McGowan defamed Palmer. And as for Mark McGowan's reputation, His Honour was (laughs) considering the fact that the uh, state election where Mark McGowan broke records for popularity, that occurred after all the defamation happened. So it would have been pretty weird for the court to say Mark McGowan's reputation was seriously damaged when he was more popular than than ever. And that led to a a pretty funny outcome from, (laughs) from the case The judge essentially said that Palmer defaming Mark McGowan even made the Premier more popular. That is, to be a person criticised by Clive Palmer can make you more popular in the eyes of the general public, which is a a pretty extraordinary finding.
1: It, It sure is. It sure is. So the judge had some pretty caustic things to say about this litigation. He said, quote, the game has not been worth the candle. What did he mean by that?
2: He meant that litigation is expensive. Apart from spending money on lawyers, you're also consuming public resources in the form of court time. For a court case to run, it's not just the judge who has to hear it. There's lots of support staff surrounding the judge. There's lots of infrastructure that needs to be made available for the parties to run their case. And by using the term the game has not been worth the candle. Another way to understand that is the juice has not been worth the squeeze in that this was a really expensive case and the damages at the end of the day are far, far less than the cost of taking the matter through to judgment.
1: At the beginning of the process, could the judge have said this is not worthy of the time and resources of a publicly funded court system? Could he have said, look, this is sort of a vexatious or silly dispute?
2: I would argue yes. There's a a doctrine called abusive process whereby courts can stay or put an end to proceedings when the interests at stake are very small and not worth the expenditure of the parties and the courts. But on the other hand, I can kind of understand why the proceedings did make it all the way in that everyone in society is presumed to have access to justice, even People like Clive Palmer, who we might find annoying, and to deny someone that access is a pretty, I guess, significant move that could have led to an appeal. So I I appreciate the reasons why his honour proceeded to hear the matter, but on the other hand, I would have preferred it if this case never made it this far.
1: Michael Douglas, what does this tell us about defamation cases and, and politicians?
2: Well, politicians are people who depend on their reputations more than most. And there have been frequent litigants to defamation cases over the years. Usually, the people they're suing are members of the media or media organisations. And sometimes those cases are absolutely justified. In other situations, though, defamation litigation by politicians is really on the nose. In particular, when you have a politician having a go at just a member of the public who isn't a media figure, I, I think that isn't a good look for democracy. But in this case, it was one politician going after another. And in my view, that third category of cases shouldn't really see the court's consideration very often at all. In that politicians sign up for what they cop, they know before they enter the game that other politicians are going to have a go at them. They also have a massive platform on which they are able to vindicate their own reputation. So I think there's a bit of a, a waste of public resources. You could in the judgement that the, His Honour Justice Lee was frustrated with the fact that the case went that far, I get the sense that most people in the public would agree that this case shouldn't have got to where it did.
1: You describe it as a kind of a lose-lose situation, but I'm wondering if on one level it was also a win-win situation. Clive Palmer, you know, was able to, to, to embarrass the Premier and the Attorney-General by, you know, revealing sort of private text messages, pulling them into the public as, as court evidence. And, and and maybe the same is true of Mark McGowan in terms of him showing that he was standing up to, to somebody who's unpopular with the electorate in WA.
2: You could make that argument, but I, I would disagree. To the extent that Palmer had any negative impact on the reputations of his adversaries, Well, he also impacted his own reputation to his own detriment. The judge came away saying that Palmer basically wasn't trustworthy enough to be a reliable witness. So in my view, to the extent that anyone's had their reputation damaged by this litigation, Palmer's come off the worst by far. Attorney General Quigley, he did cop a bit of flack in the media for some of his evidence, but the judge was at pains to, to make clear that the attorney wasn't dishonest. His his evidence was just a bit all over the shop. And as for Mark McGowan, I reckon he's come away with this pretty unscathed. I think McGowan's critics will see this case as more a, a further reason to dislike him, but I don't think it's going to make any real change to, to people who are already supporting the McGowan government
1: defamation law expert Michael Douglas, who works with Perth law firm Bennett and is an academic at UWA. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks a lot. That's The Law Report for this week. Don't forget the program is available as a podcast from the ABC Listen app. A big thank you to producer Christina Coccolia and to technical producer this week, Timothy James. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law.